Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, WTIC-FM and WTIC.com. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning, and we are pleased to be joined by Henry Talmadge, Executive Director of the Connecticut Farm Bureau. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. It's mid-April. Well, what are Connecticut farmers doing at this point to prepare for the growing season? Well, um, most farmers who are thinking about spring planting are um, are preparing for the season ahead. Mo- much of the winter is spent um, repairing equipment doing um, production plans, securing uh, seed, fertilizer, all the things that go into the input uh, of, of successful crops. And, um, of course, dairy farms are continuing to milk cows on a daily basis. And, and uh, you know, greenhouse and nursery growers are, are getting plants ready to, to go to market. So there's a, there's a lot of activity, but those farmers who plant outside in the field are, uh, are really preparing to, to get started. That's an important distinction to make that, you know, when you think about farming, you think about getting ready for the growing season. But there are a number of farmers who, you know, don't get a break. That's right. And as I mentioned, the the greenhouse and nursery business, uh, part of the the goal is to try to be as busy year round as possible because to try to cover your fixed costs, um, it's important to push as much product out as, as long as you can. So many Greenhouse operations are doing uh, poinsettias in the season, early uh, Christmas season, and then there are Easter crops, then there's spring bedding plants, and then maybe perennials and other things in the summer. So um, there's a lot of activity that, that goes on that's, uh, that's year-round, too, and, and that's important. So much of farming is weather-dependent. Give us a report on how the prior season went. Were there any big surprises, or did the weather pretty much cooperate? Well, um, pretty much it cooperated. I, I would say that whenever we talk about weather, we need to talk about locality because weather is a local phenomenon. So um, I know we've had discussions before about drought um, during the summer production season. And and you can literally have farms that on one side of a street are suffering from drought and then on the other side are okay because of the thunderstorm patterns that went through. So uh, that said, there's a, you know, there are uh, some generalities, but for the most part, we're in pretty good shape. We have, um, we're not in a drought condition. We've had lots of moisture through the fall and into the winter months. So we're going into the season with what appears to be plenty of water. That's good. Um, I think the uh, the question will be largely in the spring. It's about how wet it is throughout the spring and can the farmers get into the fields. Um, so that's kind of the first hurdle. Um, and then when we get into uh, growing season, it's about getting rain when you need it. Right. And not just how much over the course of the year, but when it comes and how uh, how intense and what the 
the periods between significant rainfalls are. So it's you know you're subject to to weather um, as farmers. That's just part of the game. And so um, I think, but we're starting the year, and I think in a, in a good place. When you think about farming in Connecticut, you probably think about fruits and vegetables, but we have so many other crops from oysters to tobacco that in many cases are bigger. That's right. So agriculture in Connecticut is is defined pretty broadly. As you mentioned, it includes aquaculture, but it also includes the production of plants, you know, both things like Christmas trees and uh, ornamental shrubs uh, and, and trees, as well as greenhouse crops. And what's interesting is almost half of the farm gate sales, the wholesale value of our agricultural economy in Connecticut is for things that people don't even eat. Um, that's the, the ornamental plant business, sod, greenhouse crops, nursery. And then um, if you add tobacco, which is still a, a, a pretty big factor in the, uh, in the market, believe it or not, uh, that also... Uh, the two of those combined to be more than 50% of our farm gate sales. So uh, that's kind of surprising to people often, but um, it makes it makes sense when you look at where Connecticut's located and the and the type of uh, industry that we we have. So yes, uh, I think you have to think pretty broadly. Um, mentioned aquaculture, uh, clams and oyster production. Um, Greenhouse crops, dairy is still uh, a very huge uh, product uh, segment of our of our market. And then, what's emerging is additionally we're seeing more and more vegetable production. Uh, even though it's a relatively small piece of the total, uh, that's where we're seeing the growth of numbers of new farmers. Why do you think that is? Is that because of the demand for locally produced products? Largely, that's that's the case. Yes, uh, I think where you're seeing this, and these tend to be fairly small farms. Um, you know, we've we've had a pretty strong history of uh, of apple production um, that tend to be larger farms and some of the fruits, but in vegetable production, the growth seems to be in the in smaller farms that are catering to local demand, either through farmers markets, uh, CSAs, community supported agriculture. Um, or, or to the extent, um, farm stands and other on-farm marketing. That seems to be where the growth in numbers of farms are, um, and we're starting to see more production that way. What are some of Connecticut's biggest agricultural exports and imports? Well, it's a it's a good question. Again, surprisingly, um, I think one of the biggest is the is the greenhouse and nursery business. As I mentioned, that's the largest segment. Uh, and much of that product does get shipped out of the state uh, into the other New England and Northeast states. So, uh, so that's a that's a big one. We have uh, a, a large uh, egg producing operation in Eastern Connecticut um, that that produces much of the fresh eggs that are uh, consumed in the in the Northeast in the New England states. So that's a that's a big one. Um, dairy products, a lot of milk that's Grown, uh, produced here in Connecticut is actually shipped out to other states as well. So, um, you know, lots consumed here, lots, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, produced there and sent out. And then, and then um, in the aquaculture world, oysters as well, they're shipped uh, out, of the, out of Connecticut 
to other surrounding New England states and, and other parts of the country as well. I would gather we're still importing a lot of fruits and veggies. Yeah. So, you know, notwithstanding what I said about the growth in the number of uh, farms and the interest in local food uh, that's translating into more vegetable farms, we still only produce less than 1% of the fresh fruits and vegetables that we consume in the state. Now, that is often a surprise to people when they say, well, wait, how can that be? I, I stop at my local farmer's market and, uh, you know, it seems crowded and there's people there and all the things. And, and, and that's all true and it's all it's good. But, um, you know, when there's 3 million people shopping for fresh fruits and vegetables, um, it takes a lot of product to, to do that. One big issue for Connecticut dairy farmers is the price of milk. How low are milk prices and what sort of hardships does that create for farmers? Yeah, this is probably the the biggest news in agriculture this year, um, this year and last year uh, in terms of, uh, uh, and unfortunately it's bad news. So the, the wholesale price of, of uh, fluid milk um, is, you know, running around 16, seven, six, less than $17 a hundredweight, um, which is well below the cost of production, not only the total cost of production, but the actual variable cost of production. So every time a farmer uh, gets a, a milk check every, every month, um, it's not even covering their operating costs for that month. So um, that's Milk pricing is a very complicated issue, um, one that is uh, you could do radio program after radio program and still scratch, scratch the surface. But I think the message there is that um, pricing is not set by local demand. In fact, it's set by a world demand and a world market. So um, as much as we hope you're, you'll drink more milk to help your neighbor farm, the reality is things that happen halfway around the world in terms of excess, excess production uh, or uh, a fall off of demand, um, that impl- impacts the price of milk more than anything else. And, and so what we're, what we're experiencing now, and dairy pricing is cyclical. It every, goes up and down and up and down. The difference with this is it seems the down is extended, meaning that um, the trough in the market Play seems to be, um, if not permanent, it's certainly extended. And that makes it very difficult because dairy farmers often have to make it to the next price swing, which comes up and, and then they can recover. Um, we're not seeing that, that forecasted to, to rise anytime in the immediate future, even for, the, for this year of 2018. Uh, Projections are that milk prices will will stay very low, uh, and that's creating a real hardship on the on the dairy industry in the state, and not just in Connecticut, but nationally, internationally, um, but especially the Northeast, where our production costs are are generally higher than other parts of the country. Is there any sense what is behind the lower prices? Is it consumer tastes? Is it a a, a glut of milk on the market? Well. I think it's all the above, and um, oftentimes, and again, I'm not a, a, an ag economist expert in, in dairy prices, but, um, but often these things are triggered by things that happen, you know, again, halfway around the world. So it might be, um, it, it might be related to excess production in China or a fall off of demand because 
their economic uh, forecast wasn't as good as, as projected. Sometimes it means that everybody's production was, was generally higher um, than was uh, predicted because there wasn't a weather emergency in one part of the world that might have happened in other times. Um, and then on top of all that, there's a complexity of world markets and things like tariffs and trade agreements and uncertainties that go with those kinds of things, which can impact pricing because of uncertainty. Uh, so it's all related. Um, the, the general consensus is that there, when there's just a little bit of oversupply, um, doesn't take much, the negative impacts that happen in the marketplace kind of spread out around the world and make it very difficult to, uh, to, to sustain dairy farms. So when that milk check comes in and it's not as big as the farmer was expecting or hoping, what are their options? Well, so there are, um, there are a couple of things. One, at the, in the last farm bill, there was a, uh, a program put in place called MPP, which is a margin, margin protection program, which was essentially designed to help dairy farmers um, when the price of milk versus the cost of production squeezes to the point where uh, it would trigger what is essentially an insurance-based payment uh, to those. Farmers have a they could buy a base amount of insurance coverage for that, and then they could purchase additional um, insurance, which would make the, the margin difference smaller. Um, that program has turned out to be not very effective because the formulas used in it um, have, have not triggered a payment uh, in, for the most part. So that whole insurance-based program hasn't turned out to be a help in the, in the federal, at the federal level. Um, just recently, the last two months or so, in one of the um, budget extenders, uh, federal budget extenders, they did make some changes to the formulas, and we're hoping that that will make it uh, a little more favorable. But that whole program has been essentially a non-player in that. Uh, in the state of Connecticut, we do have a, a program called the Ag Sustainability Account, which is part of the Community Investment Act, which um, essentially is funded through recording fees on documents in the local town halls um, that then gets transferred to the state and distributed out into five different programs. One of those programs is designed to help dairy farms in, in the same, um, same concept, meaning that, the, that when the price of, of milk falls to a level that gets very close, or now it's actually op. Uh, lower than the cost of production. These funds that were um, were, were um, gathered from the recording fees can be uh, used uh, in the Department of Agriculture, Commissioner of Agriculture administers this program, can uh, trigger payments to, to dairy farms uh, in the state. Um, that program is, is helping. It's not at full strength because of the budget um, Challenges we've had over the last few years, it's uh, that particular portion of it is is short about a million dollars a year, but it is helping, and it's incredibly important because, as I mentioned, the federal program hasn't been much use, and uh, because Connecticut's more expensive to do business than some other parts of the country, um, the risk is we're going to lose those farms um, if we don't 
figure out a way to, to help them. And this program has helped. It's incredibly important. Um, what would be even better is if we can get that back to full strength because there are farms that we will lose as a result of this market turn. You are listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Henry Talmadge, Executive Director of the Connecticut Farm Bureau. What else is on your legislative agenda this year? Well, as you know, it's a short session, um, which uh, short sessions are um, sometimes a little less ambitious because uh, just the, the time and attention. Um, that off also with the backdrop of the state budget um, concerns that have been in place for several years um, means that uh, a lot of new proposals, especially anything that has a fiscal note or a expense to the state is likely non-starter. Non yeah. non so um, nonetheless, we still have uh, things we'd like to see see happen. Um, and um, uh, one of them, as I mentioned, with this with this dairy support program, we'd, we'd really love to, to find a way to be able to help these dairy farms that are struggling so much because we, we don't have time to wait on that. Um, we've been engaged in the discussion around solar uh, on prime farmland and um, have uh, advocated for a program that would uh, require solar uh, developers to uh, post essentially a, um, a performance bond to return the land back to agricultural production or a, a, a status of, of being able to, uh, at the end of a useful cycle of, uh, of a project, to return that land to a productive agricultural state so it can be farmed again. Um, so those are those are some uh, some things we've we continue to work on issues around uh, farm wineries, uh, farm breweries um, to help that segment of agriculture uh, get established and grow. Um, uh, things like uh, minimum wage and things uh, you know some of the the labor issues that uh, face small farmers um, we've been trying to to weigh in on and and, and talk about. So uh, a whole host of, of issues that um, we continue to, to work towards uh, resolution on. And, and part of my job and, and our team uh, when we meet with legislators is to explain uh, kind of all the challenges that, that Connecticut farmers um, experience and, and look for ways to eliminate as many barriers to their success as we can. On the topic of farm breweries, you've had some success in that arena, and Connecticut, in fact, is now growing hops. Yeah, so very interesting. Uh, we've seen this trend, uh, you know, the farm uh, wineries, uh, which ha there is a farm winery permit that has been in place for several years, and I believe we're approaching 40 uh, farm wineries in the state now. Um, but more recently, as you mentioned, the interest in, in breweries, and last year there was a bill passed that uh, allows for a, a farm brewery permit. But a, a few years ago, um, the Ag Experiment Station uh, in Windsor has been working on growing trials of hops, um, that varieties that would grow well in Connecticut. And we're seeing more and more producers growing hops. Um, as a result of the bill that was passed last year on the farm brewery bill, um, we're starting to see malting grains, barley and Others uh, grown in the state, and uh, a malt house um, is is opening up uh, this year. Has opened up this year, so I think that's a perfect example of kind of the connection between um, local demand for agricultural products 
agritourism, which is a whole interesting topic on its own, and the relationship of producing things that our neighbors want to buy. And so we're seeing this, and we're seeing it in other states, um, the farm breweries and farm winery business as it relates to uh, agritourism, um, and as it relates to agricultural production is a real, is a real great story that's still emerging. Talk a little more about agritourism. It can be anything from visiting a, a winery at a farm to goat yoga at a farm. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. Goat yoga. You got it. <laughs> well, you know, the, so one of the trends that's happening in states like Connecticut is that farmers are finding it um, advantageous to move closer to consumers. And that's the, that, that comes from this emergence of local demand and, and things for local food and local agricultural experiences. And in many ways, it's a good business decision because when you're producing an agricultural commodity, meaning the, the wholesale product that leaves the farm, it's very difficult to do that profitably in a state like Connecticut. We have relatively small land mass. We have high costs of um, doing business. And so it's almost always cheaper to do that somewhere else less populated. Um, but what we have here are customers, right? We have 3 million of our own customers, but we're also right smack between New York and Boston within a day's drive. And so, you know, our greatest asset moving forward is to engage more with not only our local neighbors, but also our neighboring states. And things like agritourism, which, you know, includes pick your own farms and hayrides and, you know, all the things that we think of with kind of the fall pumpkin season and all that, but also wineries and um, wine trails and beer trails and, and this whole idea of engaging vertical integration in the marketplace, moving closer to consumers. So I often say it's not just growing apples, but it's growing apples and making apple pies and it's having a, tea, a cooking class on how to make your own apple pie with our apples. And while you're here, you know, spend the day and, and uh, you know, those kinds of things. So there's, I think we're going to see more and more of that. Um, I think that's probably uh, a trend that will continue because the, the general public generally likes to see agriculture uh, in their community and they like to see it thrive. And so, you know, that connection is really important. And when you talk to people in the tourism industry, more and more people want that experience. Right. They don't want just the product. They want the the experience where they go and make the product in some cases. Well, you know, the connection between agriculture and, and tourism has always been there, right? It's been, in, in many ways, we talk about agriculture as kind of the backdrop to our tourism industry because, you know, if you have a bed and breakfast in the country, you want to drive by farms to get the experience of being in the country. So, you know, they're not, they've never been separated and they've never been, uh, you know, independent. But what we're starting to see is those connections now not only be realized, but trying to, to layer those kinds of things so that, you know, local um, hotels might say, hey, as part of one of the things we're doing is to, is to, uh, offer tours of local wineries or, you know, package those with other uh, products and so forth. So I, I think you're going to see more and more of that. And, you know, that's part of the charm of coming to Connecticut is to experience the agricultural backdrop from, a, from an agri agriculture and agritourism perspective 
So it's not only selling the product, but also creating the feel that is critically important in, in drawing people to the state. He is Henry Talmadge, Executive Director of the Connecticut Farm Bureau. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. It's my pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. All-Star Closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.